Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julian Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. UK V-Day, the UK now vaccinating healthcare workers and the elderly. Virus vigilance, the first local infection for months, sparks mass testing in one Chinese city. And crypto crazy, we speak to a Bitcoin bull on what's driving the current rally. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. It's V-Day, as I called it, in the UK as the COVID jabathon officially kicks off in Europe. But no S-Day yet in the United States. Stimulus, I mean, and stimulus talks continue with focus on what to do about liability protection for businesses. One of the biggest sticking points, lawmakers are expected to buy themselves another week to negotiate and thrash out these terms. But a warning, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce told Congress yesterday that new aid is, quote, desperately needed and that risks of a double dip recession are rising, particularly as U.S. hospitalizations, deaths and new cases remain near record levels. It's also why, of course, we pounce on any positive vaccine news. And there's more from the FDA today. The FDA confirming that that Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is some 95% effective with no safety concerns. This data all but confirming we think that the FDA will greenlight the vaccine as soon as Thursday for use in the United States. The tug of war between vaccine hopes and the present-day reality continuing to be a driver on Wall Street. U.S. stocks, as you can see, are lower pre-market. Pandemic losers once again under pressure as new cases delay or reverse economic reopening. Pandemic winners, meanwhile, Netflix, Facebook and Apple all outperformed Monday, powering the Nasdaq to fresh records. What about elsewhere in the world? Well, Japanese stocks slipped despite the unveiling of a new near $700 billion stimulus proposal from the Japanese government. All the details on what that involves coming up. But what about Europe too? The deadlocked Brexit negotiations not helping sentiment there. Even as the UK flies the flag for those of us awaiting vaccines and a return to the new normal. And that is where we're going to begin the drivers, a landmark moment in the COVID crisis fight back. The United Kingdom becoming the first Western nation to vaccinate its citizens less than a week after the UK approved the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. CNN's Cyril Vanier is outside Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London, where the Prime Minister visited earlier today. Cyril, great to have you back with us. We called it a momentous moment. Clearly, I think the world is watching here and the reaction of some of those first recipients actually quite priceless about what it means for seeing their families very soon as well. Yeah, absolutely. If there is one name and one face that our viewers should take away from today, Julia, it should be Margaret Keenan. 
90 years old. I want to introduce you to her. I believe you may have just shown her her pictures there. She was patient A, the very first patient to get the first dose of her two-jab coronavirus vaccine here in the UK. She is 90 years old. She is an early riser. She got the jab at 6.31, we are told, local time. It happened at the uh, University Hospital Coventry. I want you to listen to Margaret Keenan and how she answered when she asked what it felt like when she found out she'd be the first patient to get it. It hasn't sunk in yet. I I can't really answer that question yet. It's just really... I don't know what to say. It's just overwhelming, it's the first, really. I would say go for it. Go for it because it's, it's free and it's the best thing that's ever happened uh, at the moment. So do, please go for it. That's all I say, you know. If I can do it, well, so can you. Well, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, I don't know what will. Julia, she says that uh, she had been lonely, alone, for most of 2020, obviously because of the risks and because of her age, the risks involved if she caught COVID. Well, she hopes that in the new year, in 2021, she will now be able to see friends and family. She won't be fully protected from the virus until the early days of 2021, because if you do the math and look at the calendar, she got the first jab today. She'll get the second jab in 21 days. And then NHS guidance says that it takes seven or 10 days for your body to then fully uh, develop immunity from the virus. So that takes us into early 2021. Still, it is such a relief for her. It is going to be a relief for all the people who are getting the vaccination today and going forward. And, you know, as if that wasn't enough, the, the I think the stars aligned today. The second patient to get it in that same hospital, try and guess the name, Julia. I'll help you. The person, the man, 81 years old, was named William Shakespeare. Not quite spelt the same way as the English playwright, but it is, but same name. Um, he's known as Jim to his friends. 81 years old, he was in the hospital's frailty ward. Uh, he was said to have his grandchildren's artwork near him when he got the jab, and then he went for a rest. This, and you know, these are all the great stories that have been percolating from the UK health system today, including uh, from this hospital behind us, Guy's Hospital, where, as you said, Boris Johnson came to pay a visit to the very first patients getting their vaccine today. For the moment, Julia, it's just a trickle. Some 800,000 doses are in country at the moment. That's enough for some 400,000 priority patients. Just a trickle, as we said, but gradually the program will expand, Julia. Yeah, I and mean, Sarah, you said it. What else could put a smile on your face? Also making my eyes water, actually, just to hear their responses and the fact that particularly for an eight-year-old who's not seen their family all year and, and can't wait to do so. It's just an amazing moment. Um, Cyril, talk to me about the proof once you've had a vaccine, because I wanted to talk to you about this yesterday and we didn't get time. People will be given a card, which at some point in the future is going to become right. an effective vaccine passport to carry out, travel, go back to some normality. Walk us through this. Well, there's some controversy around whether or not that will be an immunity passport, as some have called it. But yes, you are meant to get a card. It's a credit card sized document that indicates uh, the number of the batch that your vaccine dose came from. It indicates the actual type of vaccine that you got, because for, for now it's only Pfizer vaccines in circulation. But in a few weeks time, there will be more. There will likely be the Moderna vaccines and, uh, and, and others. Um, so it says the type of vaccine that you get, the date that you got it. It's also a reminder of when to go and get your booster jab, the second one three weeks later. What it is not meant to be 
and as I said, there's some controversy around this, is an immunity passport. Boris Johnson was very clear about this yesterday, that you're not going to be a position where some people are going to be asked for the card and allowed to do certain things because they have the card. They, they are trying to, to signal that there isn't going to be two styles of life authorized for those who have had the vaccine and those who haven't. We'll see, Julia, if that stands the test of time. Yeah, you wait till airlines start asking for uh, vaccination certificates and things. We'll see. But a great point. And to yours as well, just the data collection on this, knowing what batch number, what type of vaccine helps us collect the data to understand safety, efficacy going forward, even as people are getting this vaccine. So it's vital too. Cyril, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Sarah Vanier there in London. All right, President Trump will sign an executive order today to give Americans priority access to COVID-19 vaccines. No specifics have been provided on just how the order will be executed or what it will mean. But meanwhile, the country has experienced the deadliest week of the pandemic since April. More than 15,000 deaths have been reported, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports. A race against time in the United States as new daily cases of coronavirus surge, straining many health systems. This is where death rates really skyrocket is when you start overwhelming ICU staffs. I mean, they're exhausted already from the whole year. Here in Massachusetts, this field hospital in Worcester is already accepting patients. Even with these additional resources, we can't afford to continue to strain the hospital system at this rate. Starting Friday, doctors will no longer perform any elective procedures that can be safely postponed within the state. Across the U.S., over 102,000 people are hospitalized with the coronavirus. In California, as elsewhere, it's not only about finding hospital beds, but also having enough staff to care for the sick. The limiting factor, the most important factor here in caring for people who have the COVID-19 disease are the nurses, the staff. That's what's short and that's what's different uh, this time around than it was during our summer surge. Michigan extending its restrictions on some businesses and gatherings for 12 days. Right now, 79% of all hospital beds are occupied. We cannot risk overwhelming our hospitals further. And as the United States nears 200,000 new coronavirus cases per day, Dr. Anthony Fauci warns that number could only increase in the weeks to come. The blip from Thanksgiving isn't even here yet. So we're getting those staggering numbers of new cases and hospitalizations before we even feel the full brunt of the Thanksgiving holiday. In New York City, where almost 200,000 elementary students return to in-person learning, the governor says indoor dining will be suspended across the state unless hospitalization rates stabilize. If we don't get the rate under control and you are going to overwhelm your hospitals, we will have to go back to shutdown. Even with vaccines expected soon, health experts say now is not time to relax. While there is light at the end of the tunnel, the tunnel is not short. And that if we do not double down now on the mass and the social distancing, we really will continue to see transmission. Alexandra Field there reporting from Massachusetts. Compare and contrast to China now. One locally transmitted case of COVID-19 kicked off a mass testing drive in the city of Chengdu. David Cover is in Beijing. David, I shouldn't be surprised when I read 
how China responds and Chinese cities respond. And yet each time we see this mass testing drive, wherever it is, I am surprised. Walk us through what they've done here and why. I think, Julia, it baffles people when they hear now a total of five cases, and that has put the city on high alert. You're right. The juxtaposition to the rest of the world, especially the United States, I mean, it seems laughable. But it is really concerning here when you have five cases. The first time a case has been reported in Chengdu, this is in Sichuan province, sort of central China there, uh, in nine months. So it's concerning for officials. And then they decided to go forward with this massive testing drive for this one part of the city. So we know they've already done in 48 hours or so some 25,000 tests. And after that one case, that's where they found the other four. What they're doing now is kind of a compartmentalized lockdown. So they've decided to go forward with this, what they consider to be the Beijing model after what happened here in June, a cluster outbreak, and they only shut down part of the city compared with the Wuhan-style lockdown. What was that? 76 days the entire city sealed off, businesses crushed. I went there even a short time after it reopened, and many of those businesses said they, quite frankly, could not reopen. So they realized economically it wasn't sustainable, and even just mental health-wise for a lot of the people there, you can't continue to do that. So they have this Beijing-style lockdown that they are now putting in place in, in Chengdu, for example, in a compartmentalized part of the city, where they'll continue to do the mass testing, the contact tracing, and that is key here. Contact tracing, we're all tracked by our phones. They're able to find for these five individuals the 46 close contacts and where they've been over the past 14 days. So officials say they have already gone to those locations and they've disinfected them. That's how quickly they move. Now, the question is going to be, what's the source of this? Because what we've seen in recent days and recent weeks and recent months even is that they have linked this to imported cases. Julia, that's to say that they believe, health officials here, that some of the cases coming in are actually from packaging and frozen foods, and they're being then transmitted to individuals here. Why does that matter? Well, if you put it in greater context, what we have in the next few weeks is the WHO bringing a field team here, and they're supposed to be tracing the origins of this virus. It seems state media is pushing this narrative that perhaps this virus started from an imported case into Wuhan. That's what's being floated right now. We'll see what this most recent case in Chengdu and now five cases are linked to. Julia. Yeah, we certainly need some answers. And then the question is uh, how much we trust the results, I guess, to your uh, to your bigger point there. David Colbert in Beijing. Thank you so much for that, as always. All right. These are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A man under covid related quarantine in Taiwan who stepped out of his hotel room for just eight seconds is now facing a $3,500 fine. The migrant worker from the Philippines was caught on a surveillance camera and reported to the health department. Under Taiwan's rules, people in quarantine aren't allowed to leave their rooms at all. Authorities in southeast India are trying to find out what's behind an illness that has sent more than 500 people to hospital and left at least one person dead. And it's not COVID-19. Patients have been suffering seizures and nausea and losing consciousness. The British Prime Minister is, is expected to travel to Brussels this week to meet the European Commission president. Boris Johnson says he's still hopeful a trade deal with the EU can be agreed, but the situation is very tricky at the moment. With negotiators deadlocked, the UK has just over three weeks to reach a deal. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up, this time it's different. 
Bitcoin bull Mike Novogratz says 2020's cryptocurrency rally is driven by institutional investors, unlike earlier booms. He joins us later in the show to discuss and taking their hands off the wheel. Uber decides it's got enough to do without perfecting the driverless car. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set to fall for a second straight session as the debate over emergency aid looks set to drag on in Washington, D.C. And the need for fresh money only growing more urgent. Some 12 million Americans risk losing key jobless benefits, pandemic-related benefits, the day after Christmas. Moody's Analytics estimates, too, that nearly 12 million Americans are some $6,000 behind in rent. And the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says more than a third of small businesses are now seeing revenues fall. What else we're watching at pre-market? Well, Tesla shares are set to pull back from record highs. The electric car firm heading back to the capital markets to sell some $5 billion worth of new shares. Its second capital raise in some three months. OK, big picture as investors await fresh U.S. stimulus. Japan has already moved forward with the third package this year, a $700 billion spending and investment plan to boost economic growth. The government says it's designed to maintain employment, boost business and achieve new growth in specific areas like green and digital technologies. Singapore based DBS Bank counts Japan among its 18 markets with assets exceeding $400 billion. And I'm pleased to say Piyush Gupta is the CEO and he thinks an incoming Biden presidency could help calm market nerves. Lots to discuss. Piyush, great to have you on the show this morning. I can't help feel that all the stimulus has helped support growth. It's lifted stock markets around the world, but it's also masked a lot of the underlying damage. Do you agree? Oh, I agree entirely. Uh, I do think that uh, government actions have cushioned the economy, uh, but uh, it is quite clear that the real damage will only be known uh, next year when the various moratoriums and government schemes run out. So my own sense is that you will see a much higher cost of credit for the banks and perhaps a wave of defaults, both uh, in small and medium enterprises, uh, as well as in the individual sector, uh, consumers as well. So you're expecting to see perhaps default rates on things like credit cards, loan quality deterioration as well, that the default rates on those continuing to decline in, in 2021? I think that's probably right. In fact, mm. uh, the delinquencies and default rates on unsecured consumer finance, uh, things like credit cards and uh, unsecured personal borrowing, uh, have already been uh, going up quite rapidly uh, this year. However, uh, default rates on the mortgage book by and large, have been controlled because in most cases, the mortgage uh, portfolios are under moratorium. Now, when the moratoriums lift, I think you will see more pressure on the mortgage books uh, in the region. Uh, and like I said, I think you will see pressure in the small and medium enterprises. There's a lot of government support, both for job schemes, but actual uh, 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 bailout packages to companies. And those have to start uh, winding down. Now, in most countries in the region, uh, the central banks are being careful. They don't want the cliff effect. So the wind down will be gradual. So you're not going to see everything happen in January 1. But through the course of the year, I do expect to see an incremental degree of pain. 
I mean, we're seeing a huge divergence as well as we look globally in the recoveries of, of economies. If I look at North Asia, China, uh, Taiwan, we just mentioned them, South Korea, their handling of the virus so very different to what we've seen for many of the Western nations. What are you seeing in terms of economic activity, small businesses, the recoveries there? Um, actually, very good. Um, yeah. I think the piece of recovery, the function of three or four things. One, obviously, the healthcare regimes and the epidemiological uh, impact. Uh, the second is, I guess, the size of domestic markets and uh, how much domestic demand matters. Uh, third is, I guess, the fiscal resources of the governments and so on. Uh, but certainly, when you put all of those together, uh, North Asia is doing relatively well. In fact, most of our uh, countries we are in, I'd say economic activity is up to 85-90% of pre-COVID levels. Uh, unfortunately, this is not even. So when you look at Southeast Asia or you look at the Indian subcontinent, things are a little bit more grim there. Uh, but that again is aligned to uh, the state of healthcare as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so many angles here. I want to bring it closer to home as well and the efforts that, that Singapore and your bank specifically is making just to help people grow wealth, to invest in the stock market. We often make this contrast between those that can get access to the assets that tend to rise here, even as the underlying economy is facing challenges. I know you specifically are very passionate about this. Just talk to me about what Singapore and, and DBS itself is doing to try and help people here and small businesses, of course, too. Well, uh, it's a well-known fact that uh, uh, participation in financial markets in a sustained and systematic way uh, is helpful for wealth accumulation, and uh, which is why you can see over the last few years with low interest rates, uh, the people who have access to financial assets continue to do all right, and the ones who don't uh, continue to suffer, which is why income uh, inequality grows. Now, part of the problem is obviously lack of access to uh, knowledge and lack of access to the markets themselves, to products. Uh, but now the part of the problem is just uh, the capacity of being able to do this in small ticket sizes. You know, $100 savings, $200 savings, how can you get them to work effectively? Uh, our big focus um, uh, in Singapore has been to try and take financial planning and make it available to the man on the street, to the mass market. And so to that extent, the Singapore government with the private sector uh, launched a public-private partnership to try and create an open banking regime to allow the individual to do financial, financial planning uh, of all of the uh, various asset forms they have. And the interesting thing about this open banking, banking experiment is the government is pumping in data on the individual's tax and the individual's uh, home loans and the individual's uh, uh, pension schemes and so on. Uh, and the banks are popping in data and eventually we're going to get data from insurance. You can put all of that together and really create a complete balance sheet for an individual. Uh, you can allow the individual to plan better. And uh, like in our case, we're using a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning tools to uh, empower the individual, to get the individual to be able to get different kinds of ideas. And finally, be able to put regular savings, um, you know, $100 a month, like I said, into low risk but uh, market friendly kind of investment. Uh, the hope with all of this is that you can really make an impact to what is going to be one of the biggest problems of our time, the problem of pensions, the problem of retirements, and how do you cope with this tremendous drain of an aging society? Yeah, it's so important. It's why I'm so passionate about digitization of financial services, because, and you said it at the beginning there, it's about greater financial inclusion, ultimately, and being able to price the risk of an individual customer and give them other options, just show them what's available. On that note... 
lots of excitement right now, and particularly in your part of the world about digital currencies and digital assets. What can you tell me about the prospect of a DBS digital currency exchange? Uh, well, I think uh, this notion that uh, uh, everything is going to tokenize and digitize uh, is very real. And uh, therefore, to be able to help companies raise capital in different forms, securities uh, token offerings, uh, is something that we think will start happening at scale. Uh, we also believe other forms of digital assets like uh, cryptocurrencies are going to continue to be uh, extremely popular. Uh, and so uh, that is something that we are actually indeed studying, trying to put together an infrastructure that can help companies raise capital, that can help investors access digitized assets, uh, and to be able to support the market uh, in some form. Um, it is something that uh, we are uh, in the process of working on. And so I, I, all I can say is watch the space. <laughs> I know a lot of people are. Is this somewhere, and I know it's a case of talking to the regulators and getting everybody comfortable with what's being achieved here. Is this somewhere where I think Singapore specifically and the regulators there are flying the flag? Because there's a real sense, certainly, that other nations like the United States, for example, are behind in preparing for customers getting access to this and banks providing access to safe access. I have to say that in the last year or so, uh, the regulatory response to this is beginning to change in many parts of the world. Uh, in fact, as you know, many central banks are actively pursuing their own central bank digital currencies. Uh, it's not only in our part of the world, but also in many of the Western countries. The Canadians are doing it, the Bank of England is doing it. And so I think there's a broad-based acceptance that uh, you know tokenized digital assets are on us. Uh, some countries are further along, others are less so. Uh, but I do think in addition to the stuff we talked about, that uh, over the next year or two, uh, this focus on central bank digital currencies is going to continue to increase, uh, uh, as, of course, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, uh, digital currencies. Uh, so I think everybody is going to be part of this game sooner or later. Yeah, I love hearing you say that. It's coming. The groundwork is being done. Piyush, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Piyush Gupta there, the CEO of DBS Bank. Stay safe, sir, and we'll speak to you Thank soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move US. Stock markets are up and running this Tuesday, and we do have a lower open for the majors with the Nasdaq pulling back from record highs. Just little pullback there, though, let's be clear. That said, the FDA is one step closer to approving the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that the UK began administering to its citizens today. The FDA is saying in a new report that it sees no safety issues with the jab so far. It says the vaccine is highly effective in preventing COVID and that Pfizer-BioNTech have handed over all the information required to greenlight the vaccine in the United States, perhaps as soon as this week. So good news on that front. All right, let's talk about another asset class that's benefited from some of the uncertainty this year. Cryptocurrencies moving further into the mainstream, fueled by announcements like PayPal 
greenlighting the use of cryptos as a form of payment. And just last week, the S&P Dow Jones saying it will launch cryptocurrency indexes in 2021. Prices of some digital assets have skyrocketed this year with Bitcoin up over, as you can see, 145% from 12 months ago. Joining us now, Mike Novogratz, founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital, to tell us more. Mike, great to have you with us on the show as always. In my mind, you're a, a bridge between the traditional form of macro investing and what in the past we perhaps would have called a frontier investing in the crypto space. Explain what you're seeing today that closes that gap or bridges that divide. Yeah, it's been really exciting that, you know, Bitcoin has gone from a frontier investment to actually now a macro, you know, part of people's portfolio. Uh, hedge funds, institutions, uh, corporates, you look at micro strategy who you know, bought $400 million of Bitcoin on their corporate balance sheet. You know, everyone is now looking at Bitcoin as a, as a form of digital gold or as a hedge against debasement of fiat currency. And so, you know, the institutionalization of getting good custody, of getting people comfortable that they understood it, that it was safe, happened over the last few years. And now it's arrived. And, you know, we see nothing but more and more accounts trying to get involved. Uh, every single crypto business like mine is working at breakneck speed because just onboarding all the new accounts from high net worth to institutions to pension funds to endowments, uh, cryptocurrencies is becoming an asset, uh, not a, a frontier asset. Do you think it is down to greater understanding and perhaps the, I mean, we can break it down to the store of value or the utility use of, of crypto assets and Bitcoin specifically? Or do you think as investors, and I'm talking to some of the more sophisticated investors, look around the world and go, you know, we have $17 trillion worth of debt now trading at negative yields. We simply need to find some way to diversify and things that have more room to rise. Yeah, I think that you can split it in half, actually. Mm. Bitcoin itself is fulfilling this role of digital gold. It's just a store of value. And its adoption is accelerating in a giant way because people look at the macro backdrop of $17 trillion of negative debt, of, of budget deficits that continue to grow in almost every country and a monetization of those deficits. And so it's in some ways the perfect instrument, uh, right? It's 21 million Bitcoin, it's a hard asset, there's no inflation or, or barely any inflation. Uh, and so it works for that for this time and place perfectly. Uh, the second big story is the digitalization of everything which is happening. And we're at the beginning innings of re rebuilding the infrastructure that American and global business will be done on in the future. And that most likely happens on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, you're seeing almost every country look at central bank issued digital currencies. The Chinese have started their experiment. Uh, it will be uh, ramping up over 2021. The U.S., uh, you know, you saw Visa recently announced that they'll do a, a, a partnership with USDC, which is a stable coin, right? A dollar-backed cryptocurrency. Mm. Uh, Visa's got 30 million merchants around the world. Uh, and so all of a sudden, the world is going to go from bank accounts to wallets. And people are going to hold their value, their, their, their dollars, their Bitcoin, their movie tickets, on their phones uh, and you know the banks are going to have to rush into this space and you're starting to see it paypal was a 
was a huge uh, event this year. Uh, and mark my words, I, I saw there was a big Japanese bank that decided to get, uh, I'm sorry, Spanish bank that decided to get into cryptocurrency uh, just this morning, uh, tr both trading and custodying. And you're going to see every single financial institution forced into this space. Every bank saying we have to be involved, whether it's investing, allowing our customers to invest or providing some kind of exchange to allow people to invest in these assets? 100%. If you think about it, as we get more of these central bank issued digital currencies, right? So you'll have a digital euro, you'll have a digital dollar. All of a sudden, you're going to trade digital dollars for digital euros. The, the infrastructure that that happens on, right? The rails are the same rails that the crypto community is building, and they don't exist right now in the traditional banks. That's going to force the banks into this space. That alone will force it, let, let alone customers calling up and saying, hey, Morgan Stanley, hey, Goldman Sachs, hey, JP Morgan, why can't I buy Bitcoin with you guys? Uh, right? It's a $400 or $350 billion asset. Uh, you'll sell me claims on a bankrupt Hertz, but you won't sell me Bitcoin? Like, what gives with that? And so as, as more and more of these bank CEOs or heads of wealth management are getting these calls, they're scratching their head and saying, hey, we're starting to look a little foolish. Yeah. Uh, we used to be conservative <laughs> and now we're looking foolish. And our clients will go somewhere else if we don't provide this, uh, uh, provide this service. I just showed a chart showing the 12-month moves across uh, XRP, Bitcoin, Ethereum. I mean, you spoke about Ether, the underlying blockchain for uh, Ethereum, the, the cryptocurrency there. Do you buy the diversification argument or do you look at these specifically and go, hey, I see this because it's got greatest market share and therefore we're buying it? Are you, are you invested in any of these other uh, digital assets yeah, or currencies? Yeah, I, I like? am. I think... So we have a we have a big shop and, and have a lot of expertise around you know the whole space. Uh, I think Bitcoin as a store of value uh, is a really safe investment for people. I think Ethereum still has more of a venture flair to it, but it's an investment we like. Uh, and then there's a whole space called decentralized finance or DeFi. Yeah. Uh, this is much more for the experts. Uh, but I think in five or ten years, really the revolution is going to happen by taking the blockchain and bringing it to finance. And so we're investing in a lot of wonderful, you know, smaller projects. Um, and so I would tell our clients generally, mostly Bitcoin, some Ethereum, and then some, some in venture. Uh, you know, if you're a young crypto maniac, you know, people are trading what they call altcoins all the time. A lot of those won't have a lot of value uh, and some will have a ton of value. So, Mike, for, for someone who's looking at this and going, I get the buzz. I want to get involved. What's your advice? Because when I talk to people about this, I say, look, invest an amount of money that you don't mind going to zero. And then you're at least comfortable with the investment that you're putting in, whether it's one percent of the money that you have to play with here. Would you agree with with that idea? Just well, listen, put some that, money that to work to be, here. That used to be our story. It was to tell people, hey, put one to two percent of your net worth in Bitcoin. The worst that's going to happen, you're going to lose a little bit of it. And the best, you're going to make a whole lot of money. Um, I've changed my tune a little on that, given the stability <laughs> around Bitcoin. I now think it, it can be a, a more significant uh, port, part of people's portfolio. If I look How at the much? macro space, so I think you know a new investor could put five percent into Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin's not going back to zero. This idea that it could go to zero is is not right anymore. It could certainly trade back to fourteen thousand. You could lose thirty, forty percent, but you're not losing eighty, ninety percent of your money. Uh, there is too much infrastructure built. There is too much of a community that believes in this as a store of value. 
And so we'll see volatility come lower. And so I'm pushing people up to 5% allocations. How much have you got allocated, Mike, out of interest? Are you willing to tell me you know, as a proportion of wealth? As a proportion of my net worth, my kind of overall crypto exposure is probably 50%. Wow. Yeah. Good to hear, Mike. Great to have you on and come back and talk about decentralized finance because we have to talk about this because this is ultimate disruption, I think, for financial services. And it's um, a fascinating sphere, which is to make it relatively simple for me to understand, quite frankly. <laughs> Mike, great to chat to you. Thank you. Mike Thank Novogratz, you. founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital there. All right. From a record slump to a sustained recovery, Japan putting more money into its economy with an eye on the future. We'll discuss further next. Welcome back to First Move. Japan pledging hundreds of billions of dollars more in stimulus to boost its economy battered by the pandemic. Prime Minister Suga has announced a package that includes fiscal spending as well as targeted investments. Let's get to Sharice Pham, who has all the details on this. Let's be clear, this is the third stimulus package, financial aid package this year, Sharice. And I like the way it's broken down. Direct support, but also future growth opportunities too. Walk us through this. Yeah, right. This is the first stimulus package to come out under the new Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga, and it is the first. Unlike Abe's stimulus packages, which came out in April and May, this one also has a lot of money earmarked to kind of drive Japan's economy forward post COVID nineteen pandemic. Right, because we are going to see a pandemic at some point in the future. We all hope very soon. Um, but let's walk through a little bit what we saw in the package today. The total package is a staggering $700 billion. That includes about $300 billion in uh, government fiscal expenditure. And it is already adding to a huge number. It's, you know, Japan's already spent a lot to boost its, its economy. So we're looking a total stimulus package spend so far this year of about three trillion dollars. That, that's a number that amounts to roughly two thirds of Japan's entire economy, of Japan's GDP. Um, so this latest round will include a few measures targeted at COVID-19, vaccine prep, uh, incentives to get consumer spending, and subsidies for bars and restaurants that had to comply with restrict out for shorter operational hours. But for the money to drive the economy forward, that's a lot, almost half of this package is earmarked for that. And they're looking at things like a so-called green fund so that Japan can hit its target of being carbon neutral by 2050 and also uh, money for investments in what they're calling digital innovation. Not a lot of detail there as to what they're Yes, yeah, so some of this might here take Jim. Is that there are not a lot of details of how Japan intends to fund this giant stimulus package. Yeah, it certainly is. And obviously some of this is going to take years to, to feed in. But I like the idea and this is sending a really bold message about, look, we can do things in the short term, but we need to look at how we improve growth and do it in a green manner and focus on a digitized future at the same time too. Sharice Pham, great to have you with us. My apologies to the viewers for a few technical issues and glitches there. These things happen when you're working from home. All right, let's move on because Japan's new stimulus is a reminder that even in parts of the world that have done well against the virus, the economic consequences have been dire. And as Ivan Watson reports from Hong Kong, even the medical battle in the region 
is far from over. We're seeing a new wave of coronavirus infections hitting parts of East Asia. Here in Hong Kong, record high numbers of infections, according to the city's chief executive, who has announced new measures aimed at at stemming the spread of the disease, such as closing restaurants after 6 p.m., as well as gyms and beauty salons. Meanwhile, the military is being called in to help in both South Korea and in Japan. The situation in South Korea, described by a top health official there as the biggest crisis since the pandemic first began there last winter. So the military and the police are being brought in to help with contact tracing while COVID testing sites are having extended hours into the evenings and into the weekends in an effort to help stop the spread there. The South Korean government has announced it's allocating the equivalent of around $1.2 billion to purchase vaccines for some 44 million people. Meanwhile, Japan, the government is responding to requests for help in the COVID hotspot cities of Hokkaido and Osaka, sending in nurses from the self-defense forces to help with hospitals there. In Osaka, for example, reports of up to 70% of hospital beds being occupied by COVID patients. And meanwhile, mainland China, where of course COVID was first detected back in December, which initially saw the virus spreading out of control, but really draconian measures have helped all but stifle the virus there. The biggest headline for mainland China, five confirmed cases, at least five confirmed cases in the city of Chengdu, which according to state media have prompted authorities to lock down a hospital, a neighborhood, and a farmer's market where the first confirmed case had recently visited. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. All right, coming up, a U-turn from Uber on developing self-driving cars. That story just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. Uber has decided to hand over the keys to its self-driving car division. It's selling its autonomous car unit to competitor Aurora. As part of the deal, though, Uber will invest $400 million in Aurora. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, in English, basically they are keeping a minority stake in this. It feels like they want to own a minority stake, around 26% in something, perhaps rather than owning all of something that doesn't work in the end. Exactly, Julia. I think that Uber is really trying to figure out where are the areas that it needs to invest most in order to find long-term success and long-term profitability. Self-driving might not be it, hence this deal to sell this to Aurora. It's interesting because obviously Uber is, in a sense, at least on Wall Street, thriving lately. The stock is back near an all-time high because of hopes of a recovery in its core ride-sharing business, but also Uber Eats. And Uber Eats is is a business they're doubling down on because they're buying Postmates. So that's something I think that uh, we're clearly seeing that Uber finds food delivery to be more promising than self-driving cars right now. 
Yeah, and to be fair, this was a legacy as well of Travis Kalanick, and they do have to focus on profitability. And to your point, I guess perhaps just narrowing down on what they're focusing on here makes sense. But back in the day, they were ahead of what? Google and uh, and Tesla in self-driving vehicles. Now, speaking of Tesla announcing a, a $5 billion capital raise, Paul, I have to say, when your stock's worth a cool, what, $600 billion, it's a easy peasy lemon squeezy to uh, raise a tiny sum of money like $5 billion. Oh, how times change. It's stunning, isn't it, isn't it Julia? Shares were only down at last check about 2 to 3% this morning on the news. So a little bit of dilution with Tesla selling $5 billion worth of stock. But as you point out, $5 billion is not that significant for a company that's now worth more than $600 billion. And this is before the official addition to the S&P 500 later this month. A lot of investors have been buying Tesla shares in anticipation of Tesla's inclusion to the S&P 500, which we know is coming in one fell swoop at the end of the year. So, I mean, Tesla is now a company that there are only a handful worth more than it that's in the S&P 500. It's those big tech stocks. Do you think the, the good news there on the inclusion in the S&P 500 is already in the price? You're right that, that funds have to go out and add it if they own the index, but Given the price move that we've seen this year, I just wonder whether um, it's baked into the cake here. Yeah, I would think that uh, with the shares, uh, you know, up about six hundred and seventy percent or so, is that already all? in twenty? <laughs> just that, that's it. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk, uh, you know, probably should be jealous of other companies that are up seven hundred percent. I yeah. mean, obviously, a lot of index funds, I think, and individual investors have already bought Tesla shares. But again, you can't discount the notion that all of these mutual funds and ETFs that are either index funds that have to own Tesla or funds that benchmark the S&P 500, they're not going to want to not have Tesla because then that means that their performance will lag by not having Tesla in their funds. So I think you still may see some fund buying in the coming weeks, but it won't be so dramatic because I think a lot of it's already baked into your Yes, agreed. Baked in an electric oven. Paul, I have to say, I didn't think it was possible for your backdrop to get more exciting, but you have excelled yourself today. I was sort of half listening to you and half just admiring what was, go what was going on behind you. Are those awards yours? Uh, those are fantasy football trophies. One is my wife, but the rest are mine. Yes. Wow. Go your wife. I love that. Paul and Monica, thank you so much. I'm being told to shut up. That's it for the show. Thank you for watching. I won't be here tomorrow but I'll be back with you on Thursday. Stay safe in the meantime, and I'll see you very soon. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.